This is episode 526 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In Acts 4, we get a ringside seat to the first organized governmental persecution of the early church. They were told in no uncertain terms not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. And as we previously discussed, the issue is one of authority and whose authority the church would bow to. Respectively, of course, the disciples refused to follow the governmental mandate, and Christian civil disobedience was born with these chilling words, For we cannot but to speak the things we have seen and heard. When they returned and reported to their brethren what the government demanded and their response, the church, the entire church, broke out in a spontaneous time of praise and prayer that literally is unequaled in the book of Acts. And it was during this time of prayer that the early church asked the Lord for two things. One was granted immediately. The other took some time. In fact, the spiritual clogged drain needed to be unclogged before the God granted their request. Oh, and the clog? Well, you can find out all about it in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Join us today as we discover another way God protects his church during persecution by removing roadblocks or clogged drains that hinder his children from truly experiencing the abundant life he promised, as we also learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We are in the process of going through uh, what I call the church under and on fire, kind of a overview of some chapters in the book of Acts, which looks at the church as they were suffering persecution, the first church, the church that has far less history than we have, far less rights that we have, and yet they did unbelievable things so much that the pagan community then, later on in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, said that these men who have turned this world upside down have even come into our town. What can we learn? How can we see our situation today and what we're facing and what we will face through the eyes of the Holy Spirit as played out in these people in the book of Acts. As I shared with you before, we talked about last week, we looked at uh, Acts chapter 1, where of course Jesus ascends into heaven. He uh, gives his command to his disciples, you shall be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. They go into the upper room, they pray for um, 10 days, there's 120 of them there. Acts chapter 2 rolls around, Pentecost, that promise is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit comes, and as I shared with you, Peter... Peter, the leader of the group, but Peter, the one that denied he even knew Jesus just a month and a half earlier, Peter stands up in the midst of them, preaches a really in-your-face intense message that if you omit the Old Testament scriptures is only 297 words long. 3,000 people get saved at that time. And of course, Acts chapter 2 ends with the early church bonding together. They had all things in common. They broke meals with sincerity and gladness of heart. God was leading them to bring new people into the fold daily, that they had favor with everybody, with those that were part of the group and part those that weren't part of the group. Verse 42 of Acts chapter 2 through 47 are amazing passages. I think it's a picture of what God wants his church to be like today. And then, of course, whenever God starts a work, as we sang in the song, Is He Worthy?, that even though darkness may come upon the land, it cannot extinguish the light. And so we have this light shining, and uh, the establishment, the elite, the government, the media, however you want to call it, decided to come against the church. We talked about this last week. Acts chapter 3, a miracle takes place, and you find all the details about the miracle there. They, they see this thing happening. Peter preaches another incredible message where he could have stopped and just told them what happened, but instead he told them their guilt in what happened in the death of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, the state begins to move against them. They arrest them. They throw them in prison. They bring them up in front of this great assembly of people. And as I shared with you last week, there's 11 groups of people that are listed here. They ask, by what power or in, or in whose authority and whose name have you done this? Verse 8, then Peter, of chapter 4, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he should have said, period. I've answered your question. That's by what name or what power we've done this. But he didn't. He continued. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And this is a stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstones, quoting Psalm 118. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. We talked about last week that we can learn some principles here about what happens when the church faces persecution, the limits of the state's authority over us. And we find that happening here. All they can do is threaten. They only have raw power. We can take your house away. We can throw you in prison. We can keep you from speaking. We can tell you to stop. They, of course, realize that they're following a higher power here, and they decided that they would do, in the New Testament, the first instance of what we call today as civil disobedience. It says here, verse number 17, but so it, this, not the miracle, but it, the the name of Christ spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this person's name. We are going to deplatform them. We are going to cancel them. They're going to lose their jobs, maybe even lose their freedom if they keep speaking about this Jesus. So when they called and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus, Peter then said, and John, whether it is right, this is verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, whether it's, it's an authority issue. Do we follow your authority or a higher authority? Do we follow your authority or the person who gave you that authority? God, uh, you judge, but we cannot but speak these things which we have seen and heard. We're going to continue proclaiming the message. They threaten them some more. If you do that, you lose your job, you lose your house, we're going to arrest you, we're going to take your kids away from you, DSS is going to get involved, we're going to do everything we can as a state to stamp out this message. And they didn't care. To me, that part's amazing. The most amazing part is what happened when they went back um, home to their church and told them what happened. Instead of the church being afraid for the corporate entity going, no, 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 stop, let's do what they say. You know, we don't want them to come and take our stuff away and, and maybe lose our jobs. And I don't, want, I don't want my neighbors to look bad upon me because I'm going to a church with you, Peter and John. Instead of that, they all came together, they raised their voices in one accord, and they praised God for what they did. And they asked for more power. They ask that this message continues, that it's not just Peter and John that are proclaiming this message, but every one of us in this church empower us that we can do the same thing because the goal is not living a happy life on this earth. The goal was to make our aim and our ambition, as I talked about two weeks ago, to be well-pleasing to him. Well-pleasing to him. We're going to look at the church's response in just a few minutes. But if you follow through the book of Acts, we now have another attack in Acts chapter 5. And this attack is on the inside of the church. The outside of the church, the church grew stronger. We've learned that just from seeing what happens in communist China and in, in Laos and some, uh, many of the, uh, the other communist countries. But the way Satan tries to destroy the church is on the inside. And so in Acts chapter 5, there's an attack against trust, an attack against unity. Remember, the early church shared everything together, everything. Didn't say they had to, it's what they chose to, because they had been canceled and deplatformed from the rest of society. They were no longer, they were unclean people, they were reprobates, they were extremists to the Jews at that time because they're following this dead Messiah that they claimed to be raised from the dead. They were a challenge to Rome because they're going to serve, serve no one but God alone. And so therefore, they were so marginalized, many of them lost their jobs. Some of them probably lost their home. We're going to find out when Paul begins his persecution that they're going to lose their lives. And so they bonded together as one, as a cohesive family. 
That's what Acts chapter 2 talks about, beginning in verse 42. They sold their possessions, which is anathema to us today, to ever do anything like that, because we don't trust each other. Church doesn't trust each other, because that's why you have churches on every street corner that don't even talk to each other. But they sold their possessions, they put it all together, or the imagery they used here is laid it at the apostles' feet, and then they distributed those as everyone had need. Well, that's not capitalism. No, it's not. Well, that's communism. No, it's not. It's, it's a biblical picture of the, of the church back then. If you had a need, your need was met. But I have a lot of money. And so if I, if I give all my money, and this person over here only has a little money, if I give all my money and that person gives a little money, then, what, what, then we're all going to be living at the same standard of living and his will raise and mine will lower? Yeah. But it's not about the amount they gave. It was the fact they gave all. I gave all. He gave all. He has nothing, I have nothing. He's dependent on the Lord to meet his needs. If you'll seek me and my kingdom, I will take care of all your needs. He's the same way, I'm the same way, and that's how the church functioned back then. Can it ever function like that again today? I don't know. I'm not advocating that. I'm just telling you how it was back then. And so when this attack took place, what the church was founded on was a single commitment to Christ and a commitment to each other based on trust. I trust Jesus as his word, but I also trust my fellow church members to trust Jesus at his word. So therefore, I'm technically trusting them with my life as I'm trusting my life to him. One family, one God, all unity. And so when the second attack came in Acts chapter 5, that's what they tried to do, is attack the unity of the church that was vital for its survival. So as we go through just the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5, I want to go ahead and give you the points, the lessons we're going to learn from them first, and then I'm going to reiterate these at the end of the message. First message is this. Jesus said there will always be tares in the church, always. That you will always find those that are solely committed to Christ, and you will always find those who aren't. You will find some, like Ananias and Sapphira, I believe were believers, but uh, they were looking out for themselves, and which is fine. They, they could have done that, but nevertheless, they, they lied to the Holy Spirit in order to elevate themselves to a spiritual platform that they didn't deserve, they hadn't earned. They did it by stealth and by manipulation, and God moved quickly to remedy that issue, like he did in the Old Testament with... Uh, Aaron's sons, that we'll talk about it another time, but there will always be tares among wheat. Always. Jesus talked about that. You can look the passages up yourself in Matthew chapter 13. Number two, that uh, actions always speak louder than words. Always. We know that in our general life, but it is also so true in the spiritual life. Number three, we'll find out in these passages, the Holy Spirit is fully God. He's called Lord Holy Spirit, and God in these passages, showing that God, the Holy Spirit, who lives in you, is just as much God as God the Father that we pray to or God the Son that died for our sins. We also find that God is not mocked. He will not be mocked. He has patience and he has long-suffering, but when we begin to mock God's character, such as, oh, he won't really care. God's really not going to judge. It doesn't matter. I can lie to him. I can blaspheme his name. I can grieve the spirit, and there'll be no consequences at all. That is not true. We find that the, let's see if I say this right, the normal Christian life is one of spiritual abundance. That's what God created us for. That's what he empowered us for. He says that we are complete in him. He says in in Colossians 2, he says that in him we have the wisdom of God and sanctification and redemption. We have everything we need to live a life of abundance. And that doesn't mean fleshly abundance. It means spiritual abundance, the abundant life he promised in John 10. All of us should be living that. But the reason why we aren't is not because we have to work real hard in order to achieve something from God like a reward or a merit, 
like he's going to bless some kids more than others. But the reason why we aren't living that way is usually there's something in our life that is preventing the Holy Spirit from flowing. There's a stumbling block. There's a sin. There's pride. There's arrogance. There's something in us that is preventing us like an illness from being living this full, abundant life in Christ and abiding in him. And if we can remove those things and just let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does, our lives will be more like what he designed us to be. It's that way in our individual lives, and it's that way in the church, because the church is pretty much made up of individuals. And what we will find is God will go to extraordinary measures really over-the-top measures, really overkill measures, doing things that seem heavy-handed today and out of character today in order to maintain the holiness of his church, which reflects his very character. As we look at um, Acts chapter 5, that's the points that we're going to point out in here. And there's some profound reasons why. Understanding that... Let's just realize how important confession is and repentance is because it's only through confession and repentance and faith in Christ that we even experience salvation. And it's only by confession and repentance and faith in Christ that we experience sanctification. They experience this holy life as what we've been talking about, the higher Christian life. So we've been looking at the church on fire and uh, I want you to, I want to show you how this kind of flows together. It's pretty amazing. If, uh, if you go to Acts chapter 4, we'll begin in verse number 23. This is the response of the church now. They weren't out for themselves. They weren't afraid of what was going to happen to them. Instead, they bonded together in one accord, in unity, crying out to God, saying, you knew this was going to happen. Let's bring it on. Give us more power. Give us more opportunities to spread your light in this dark world. Almost exactly the opposite of what the church does today. The church says, no, 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 let's close the windows, let's close the doors, let's not ring the steeple bell, let's not let anybody know what we're doing in this little place, we'll worship the Lord here, but out there where the big boogeyman is, we're not going to take his light, and if the world will leave us alone, we'll be okay to be satisfied with our little relationship with him in this small little cloistered life. And as I've shared with you before, the world is no longer satisfied and letting us live that way, they are now taking the battle to us. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders said to them, all for one, one for all. So when they heard this, they raised their voices to God with one accord saying, get rid of these two radicals. Make Peter and John leave. We just want to be left alone. We want to build our 401ks. We want to pay our house off. We want to take our vacations. We want to raise our kids and and keep them away from the bad world out there. Just make them go. That's not what they said at all. They raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God. You're the big God. No one bigger than you. You're the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. You are the God who by the mouth of your servants, David, said, and quoting Psalm 2, that this was going to happen. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The king of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And we remember, Jesus, you saying, if they've done this to the master of the house, How much more will they do this to the servants of the master, which is us? Later on, Paul will say that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer just like Peter and John. If if Frank and Bob and his family and Ellen and her friends want to serve God like Peter and John served, then the state that came against them will also come against us. They understood that. They counted the cost. They expected it. They're praying that way. Verse 27, For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And that's Psalm 115, verse 3. That's the sovereignty of God. 
None of this happened by surprise. There's no reason for us to be afraid. You have this all planned out in your sovereignty. There's a reason for this, and we trust you. Therefore, the situation we're facing. Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants that they with all boldness may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is their prayer request. And there's two requests in here. Watch this carefully. Look at their threats and grant. Grant us that we can be as bold as Peter and John. Grant us that we can be bolder than Peter and John, that we can spill out from this church. And instead of just the two of them going to the temple to pray and that man getting healed, there'll be hundreds of us, thousands of us going out in doing exactly the same thing. First prayer request, let us speak your word with boldness. Second prayer request is we want you to stretch forth your hand to affirm our message and to heal. And not just heal, but that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What Peter and John did to this man who was lame, we want you to do that through every one of us as we go out and share your word. Pretty bold, would you not say? Amazingly bold. But when did these prayer requests get answered? The first one was answered immediately. Immediately, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And prayer request number one answered. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Boldness. Okay. What about the second one? The second one. When was the second prayer request answered. And it wasn't answered until Acts chapter 5, verse 12. 12. Look what it says here. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And it gets worse. Yet none of the rest dared to join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes now of both men and women. Acts chapter 2 added, Acts chapter 5, multitudes. So that they brought the sick out into the street and laid them on beds and couches that at least a shadow of Peter passing might fall on some of them. And also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Wow. So the prayer request was, Persecution took place, and instead of running like scared little rabbits, they bonded together as one, and they said, give us more. Give us more of that power. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The room they were in was shaken. They began speaking the word of God with more boldness. Number two, confirm that word, and let us do what Peter and John did for your glory. And we find that in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. That's exactly what happened. Signs and wonders took place, so much so that people from outlying areas are bringing their sick in so that they were all healed and maybe just a shadow would fall again on them. I mean, this was incredible, the stuff that took place in this town. But there's something that happened between these two answered prayer requests. One was answered immediately, and the other wasn't answered until something happened. And what happened was the first part of Acts chapter 5. You want to speak the word with God with boldness, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and and you'll do that. I mean, God will give you that grace and that mercy, and, and you'll just be so filled with his spirit, you can't help but talk about what you've seen and heard and experienced in him. But when it comes to, at least with the church there, when it comes to doing unbelievable things that we just dream about, some people don't even believe it's possible today, something took place between those two. And what took place was the removal of some spiritual roadblocks that was keeping the church from functioning fully in the spirit of God. And that's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 5. Now, Luke understands this, and so Luke begins to set this up. I want you to remember that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions weren't put in here until like the 10th and the 11th century. And so as you're reading this, as Luke wrote it, it's one long text. There's some paragraphs, but there's no divisions of chapters and verses. That's given for us to easily 
figure out the passage we're looking at. So verse, chapter 4, verse number 37, and chapter 5, verse number 1 are all part of the same narrative collected together. It's not like one thought set that aside. Oh, we're going to look at chapter 5. And here's what it says. First, we have the example of someone in the church who was living the kind of life that many uh, of them probably wanted to live. And it's a man that we know as Barnabas. And we see that in verse number, um, verse number 36 and 37. Prior to that, Luke reiterates the fact that the church was sharing all their stuff with each other. There was no one that had any need. Verse number 33 says, well, let's go to verse 32 of chapter 4. And it says, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. All for one, one for all, sold out to each other. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Wow. Okay. And with great power, the apostle gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great is used twice in that verse. Nor were there anyone among them who lacked for all who are possessors of lands or houses, and those are serious assets. It's one thing to cash in an IRA or to you know, give somebody a check for $1,000, but land or houses where they lived, land, probably farmland, maybe rental land they had, their house, their own personal dwelling, or maybe it's rental property that they had. Those that had were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. This was not a requirement. This was not rules for joining the club. This is something they freely did. I don't want to be encumbered with this world anymore. I don't want to have to worry about taking care of my piece of property that I have that I'm hoping when I reach 65 and I quit my job that I can quit everything and get a Winnebago and go travel the world and take my vacations and do all this stuff that I want to do. They, sold them, they saw themselves as bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, so they got rid of all that voluntarily. Make sure you understand it. Voluntarily. Never was it under compulsion, just like it is today, voluntarily. And so Luke then shows us someone that they all would have recognized his name when they read the gospel account of Luke, and it's Barnabas. How did Barnabas become Paul's co-missionary? How did Barnabas come to the limelight? What was Barnabas' history? So here it is says, and this man who was named Barnabas by the apostles, which of course means son of encouragement, he was a Levite from the country of Cyprus. Okay, we understand the bio of him. He had land. And so what he did is what many people did. He sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Can't imagine what that was like, but I'm sure when he did that, it was like, wow, this guy's given everything. This guy's all in. I mean, I, why are you doing this, Levi, uh, or, or Barnabas? Why are you bringing all this stuff and, and laying it here? I don't want to be part of it anymore. I, Christ has redeemed me. I want to be jettisoned from all the stuff that I have. I want to trust his word explicitly. And he promised us in Matthew chapter 6 that if I, if I seek him and his kingdom, that he'll take care of all my needs. Right, but that doesn't mean you're going to be living in a seven-bedroom house. I don't care because my life is not about where I live and how easy my life is and the stuff I watch on television. My life is about serving him. I want to serve him. I'm sure he was an encouragement to everybody. Man, I'd be intimidated, wouldn't you? Wow. Wow, his spiritual status in the community probably raised up. It's not why he did it, but it was like, man, Barnabas, man, that's amazing. Because Barnabas, you had, you had land. I don't have land. I live in a little rental place and and I worked for some sheep herder down there. I don't have much of anything, but you, you had land, which probably meant rental land, agricultural land. Maybe people worked for him, and you sold it and brought it all so I can be free now, free to do everything God wants me to do. You know what? I would like people to view me the way they view Barnabas. Yes, I am. Um, I would like to have that kind of faith, but I don't. So I'm going to act like I have that kind of faith and con them into thinking I'm just as faithful and spiritual as Barnabas is, but I'm really not because I really don't trust the people. 
I really don't trust Peter. I really don't trust God. I really don't trust this whole Christian thing. I don't know how long it's going to last, and I got to look out for me. I got to look out for number one. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do what I have a total right to do, which is sell a piece of property. I don't even have to do that, but I am. I'm going to sell a piece of property, but I'm going to keep some of the money back for me. Nothing wrong with that. In our culture, that seems prudent. Keep some of the money back for me just in case, rainy day fund, my plan B, and then I'm going to go and I'm going to give them all the money, but, but I'm going to lie about it, and I'm going to make them think I did just what Barnabas did, make them think I'm just as spiritually as he is, make them think I trust God just as much as he does, yet I don't. I'm going to con them, and you know what? Doesn't matter. We got our little nest egg. We got our account and our LLC and an offshore bank so they won't know about it. And if this thing doesn't work out or I get irritated at Peter or I don't feel particularly like hanging around some of the other people we're hanging around because they dress different than we do or I don't feel like it's, it's, these things are distributed fairly, which is another attack that will come up in a couple chapters, then I can always bail out and I'm okay by myself. Nothing wrong with that. He was free to do that, but he lied about it lied about it for sinister spiritual reasons, and it became a stumbling block spiritually, not only for him, but probably also for the church if it was allowed to persist. And so we had this story about Ananias. When I watch um, movies that deal with the early church, they never tell this story. I mean, it's a confusing story. It seems heavy-handed. It seems frightening. It seems petty to be honest with you. So many other great sins in that. I mean, come on, he lied. Ain't that big a deal, okay? You can't serve on the finance committee anymore. But really, there's also a, there's also a, you know, a, where did you ask him if he could uh, repent of that? Did, uh, and that's not in there. I mean, it sounds like Ananias just dropped dead of a heart attack. His wife, it appears, got an opportunity to repent, and she didn't, but it was, it was amazing. Look what it says here. It says, a certain man named Ananias. By the way, the word Ananias means just Jehovah has dealt with graciously. Oh, so this was a man who was blessed. This was a man who we would say had the favor of God on him. Maybe a man that owned multiple properties and had the best of this world and was doing really well. Certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Okay. They didn't have to sell it. They chose to sell it. We find out later that this possession is a piece of land. They sold a possession. Doesn't even mean it was all their possessions. It doesn't say they sold their house. Doesn't say they sold their cars or liquidated their bank accounts or sold his business. It just was a single possession. Part of what he had, he decided to sell. And he kept back part of the proceeds, which was his right, and his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it, not everything, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Has he committed a sin? No, not at all. Matter of fact, he's done an honorable thing. He's done a great thing. Wow, that's really great. So instead of taking a vacation, you're going to take that money and send it to missionaries. Wow, Wonderful. So and you've got four different lots out here that you're renting to people. You're going to sell one of those lots, and you're going to take that money invested in God's kingdom. That's fantastic. There's no sin here. As a matter of fact, I admire this guy for what he's done. But he did it with hypocrisy. We don't know that yet, but he did it with hypocrisy. The purpose of doing this was to deceive to deceive his brothers and sisters who are living in a trust relationship. I trust Christ. I trust you as you trust Christ. And he's going after the, the weak link in this whole church at this time, this element of trust. And he's uh, dealing with hypocrisy. And Jesus condemned hypocrisy more than any other sin. Any other sin. You can look that up yourself in Matthew chapter 6 where he talks about when you, when you pray, don't do it hypocritically on the street corner so everybody knows you pray. When you give a gift, don't do it with a great fanfare. Hey, here's what I'm doing. You know, don't, draw, don't drop that check that's for $3,000. Want everybody to know. Don't do that. When you give a gift, do it quietly. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And when you, 
when you do righteous deeds, just do it quietly so only you and God know and you'll be rewarded privately. When you pray, don't do it so people will notice because you have your reward there. Do it so God notices. Not what he wanted to do. So Peter, sensing something, maybe it was the Holy Spirit speaking to Peter, I believe it was, which the cool thing about this is it shows God was speaking to people even after Acts chapter 2. He said this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? I'm not lying to the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm lying to you. I'm lying to the church. I'm lying to everybody else, but I'm not lying to the Holy Spirit. Sure you are. And kept back part of the price of the land for yourself. Um, can't I do that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're not, we're not, you're not being chastised because you kept some of the stuff yourself. You're being chastised because you're given the impression that you've surrendered everything to God, you're giving it all to God, that you're something that you're not, that people will look to you for spiritual leadership, and the fact is that you're just as sinister and just as, as guilty even more so than they are. It's hypocrisy that violates trust. I can't imagine what it'd be like when Bob over here gave everything that he had and Ananias over here says he gave everything that he had. And then Bob finds out that Ananias is still collecting rent on a bunch of property that he said he sold and gave to the Lord. And now all of a sudden, Bob over here doesn't really trust what Ananias is saying. And he confronts Ananias about it. Ananias is rather defensive about it. And then all of a sudden, Bob realizes, wow, everybody's not all in like I'm all in. So if I don't trust Ananias, I'm not going to trust him. I'm not going to trust Debbie or other. Maybe I start needing to watch it out for myself here. Because if they're not all in, then they're gonna, it's just going to turn out bad. I'm going to get thrown under the bus. And it just destroys the unity of the church at that time. But you need to understand, and please, especially living in our culture, these were all voluntary. Voluntary. Ananias had a choice to do this or not do this. Nobody told him he had to do it. He saw Barnabas do it. I want to be like Barnabas. I want to get the attaboys like Barnabas. I want to hypocritically deceive everybody to think that my relationship with God and my sacrifice with God is just as great as Barnabas, so they'll look at me through eyes for my own self-gratification that I haven't earned or deserve. Peter says, look, this is yours. While it remained, it was yours. You could do with it what you want. Even when you sold it, you could have done what you wanted with it. Nobody told you you had to give it to the Lord. Nobody told you you had to come and lay it at the apostles' feet like some sort of grand gesture. Nobody told you anything that you had to do with your money. It's your money. But you conceive something evil in your heart because you wanted to make people think, make God think that you are something that you are not. You lied not just to us, but more importantly, you lied to God. God, I'm, this is who I am and that's all that's going to be and you know that, Lord, but I, I don't really care because I really don't think that you're going to judge me. I don't really think that you care that much. I think that you're kind of aloof. I'm just going to go ahead and do what I want to do to get my attaboys. And the purpose, of course, of him lying to the Holy Spirit was that he would be hypocritically praised for something he didn't do. That God would somehow bless him in a special way for not doing what he said he would do. And to me, looking at this, seeing all the sin that's in the church, I go like, you know, compared to people watching porn and couples having premarital sex when they're not married and people, men especially, so addicted to money that, that they, it's all they can talk about or women who dress in such a way to try to garner the approval of other men other than their husbands. I mean, divorce and abuse. And I see so much sin in the church that we never deal with that when I look at something like this, I go, it ain't that big a deal. I mean, come on. I mean, if that happened here and we found out he lied, I go, why'd you lie? I don't know. I just, I kind of messed up. Well, don't do that again. You know, it doesn't seem like that big a deal to us because we don't live in unity like they did, but to them, it was profound. It was profound. Then Ananias, hearing these words, if you think about it, had a stroke, a heart attack. It was a judgment of God, 
and he breathed his last. He died. Bam. Right there. Fell at the apostles' feet. Now, one thing that you should know is uh, Ananias was not a non-believer because Peter actually talked to him about the fact that he knew the Holy Spirit. I'm sure he was a believer and he made a, a, uh, he made a decision and God chastised him for that decision. God always chastises us because he loves us and sometimes he chastises us to the point that he sends us home. You're done. It's actually better for my church, Ananias, that if I pluck you out of it now and just send you up here to heaven as a believer, other people won't be hurt by your attitude, by your actions, by your hypocrisy. I can't allow it to spread. I believe that has happened to some of the people I've experienced who've died some untimely deaths. And when you find out more about their life, it's like, wow, you know, God blessed his church by removing Ananias from the midst of it. Hard for us to understand, but if you understand how much he loves his church, it makes more sense. So, needless to say, great fear came upon all of those who heard these things as word begins to spread. And you, 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 you don't understand. I mean, I was, I was listening to Peter, and Ananias came, and he made this really big deal. He laid the, the, the money down at Peter's feet, and Peter, his like, countenance changed, and, and he asked Ananias a couple of questions about lying. And Ananias, he turned pale and white, and, and he looked like a sheep. Bam, he just fell over dead. And, and man, I don't, I don't know what happened here, but I ain't never going to lie to Peter, and I'm definitely never going to lie to the Lord. Peter did not do this to Ananias. God did. When, when the man was, uh, they were carrying David's, they were carrying the, the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, and it was on an ox cart, which it shouldn't have been. They were violating God's law, and they were carrying it. There was a man walking on the side. You remember the story. And all of a sudden, the ox began to stumble, and the Ark of the Covenant of God the, began to slide off to the side, and this man put his hand up and touched it just to steady it so it wouldn't fall in the mud. Remember the story? Remember what happened to him? Dropped dead. Dude, that's overkill. Wait a second. He was doing you a favor, God. No, I don't need your favors. I need you to obey my word. We have in the Pentateuch, we got the story of Aaron's two sons, and they're offering strange fire at the altar. They're, they're taking their priestly jobs very casually. If you read the rest of that passage, it probably means that they were drunk, and God struck them both dead. Bam, bam. Aaron didn't do that. Moses didn't do that. God did that. And he told Aaron, don't you even grieve for them. Well, come on, they made a mistake. They, 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 they weren't sober. They, they, they messed up. Come on, they're my kids. And they kind of overkill, not when it comes to the holiness of God. Never when it comes to the holiness of God. Again, I have two passages here. First, 2 Corinthians 11, 2 to deal with the holiness of God. And it talks about the fact that he present, we, the Christ, uh, Paul wants to present the church there as a chaste virgin to Christ, not some woman that's been around. And we find in Ephesians 5.27 that he wants to present the church to himself as a glorious church with no spot or wrinkle, no blemish. That's why he wants us to live. We don't view it that way because it's so much easier to live in the gray areas and the Laodicean areas, but that's not how God dealt with his church back then. It continues. That's the narrative here. Ananias is now dead. So the young men rose and wrapped him up, probably in a rug, carried him out, and buried him. What do you think their conversation was like? Did, did, uh, did, 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 you, did you see what happened? I'm assuming this was just a heart attack. His... his his sin must have been so great that he was like overwhelmed. I mean, I, I don't know what kind of health guy Ananias was. I don't know if he ate vegetables or bad stuff, but the fact is, he's dead. Word kind of spread about this event that took place, and they were, they were kind of intimidated. I'm sure the church there, if you were there with Peter, and you were seeing Ananias bring the gift, and all of a sudden he died, and the men came in and hauled him up and took him out. There's no fanfare. There's no, oh, Ananias has died. You know, let's have a funeral. None of that's taking place. He's just wrapped up, taken out, and buried. And granted, back then they buried him before the sun went down, but nevertheless, there's no mourning that's taking place here. And the atmosphere of the church probably was quite subdued. And everybody who watched that is probably thinking, man, uh, I, need to, 
man, I need, I need to look at my own spiritual life and make sure, make sure I don't make a mistake like that. Three hours later, his wife comes in and she didn't even know what had happened. I mean, whoever knew about this kept it under hushed tones, didn't tell everybody because they were afraid of what it meant and maybe they're trying to figure out themselves. But Peter, note this, answered her. Doesn't say he said. Later on we find he said, she said, there's a conversation taking place. But Peter answered her, which means she must have made some statement. She probably came and said, hey, here's this, uh, you know, my, my, my husband brought this offering and we just want you to know that we're just giving it all to Jesus and we just love the higher Christian life and, and we're ready to serve him anywhere we can because, you know, we're all in 100% because Jesus is everything. And then Peter answered whatever her question was and said this, hey, tell me, did you sell the land for X amount of dollars? Um, yeah, uh, we, yes, we sold it for that amount. And Peter knew she was lying because she had already colluded with her husband to deceive them. Second verse, same as the first, story continues. Here he gave her an opportunity to repent and she obviously declined. Did you sell the property for $123,000? Um, no, we really sold it for two forty, two forty five, really, but... Uh, my husband and I agreed to keep it behind. So, yeah, yes, yes, we, we sold it for that amount of money. So we gave her an opportunity to repent. She obviously declined. And watch Peter's change of demeanor here. It's no longer Ananias drops dead. Maybe Peter's even surprised. Watch what happens here. So Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test, to test the spirit of the Lord? Look. The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. That's a little more direct, is it not? I mean, how did Peter know this was what God was going to do? She may have said, no, I feel fine, and turned around and walked away. I mean, obviously God had spoken to her. You can see the change in that. Something happened during those three hours between the time Ananias died and Sapphira was confronted here. And it may have been the fact that Peter spent a lot of time with the Lord and the Lord had told him, look, Peter, this may seem harsh to you, but this is the holiness of my church and my name will be revered among the people. Then immediately, right there in front of Peter, she fell down on his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Sometimes God's judgment is hard to understand, but every time he does something like this, he does it to protect those he loves. If you talk to a lost person who hates God and hates the Bible, they always throw up the same things. How can a loving God in the book of Judges, in the book of Joshua, command his people to go into a foreign land and butcher all the innocent people living there? Men, women, children, livestock, everything, and burn their villages. How can a loving God do that to those innocent people? It's because God is loving, and those people aren't innocent. And the fact is, he loves his people so much that he knows that if you hang around those people, you'll become like them. You will no longer follow me, and if you no longer follow me, you will experience my wrath, my eternal wrath on you, and because I love you so much that I don't want that to happen, and I know that bad company corrupts good character, I love you so much that in your eyes, where you view everybody as equal, in your eyes, it seems harsh, cruel, genocide. But from God's perspective, it is protecting his kids. What would you do to protect yours? And when stuff like this happens, there's a collateral blessing. And the blessing is the fact that great fear, great reverence for God and great fear of God came upon the church and everybody else who heard about these things. I imagine a lost person out there who has some friends who belongs to the church and going, dude, man, I'm... I know my heart, and I don't know if I want to be part of that group in there because, I mean, that, God, God takes this stuff seriously. Look what he's done to them. 
when you malign God's character, he will never stay silent. And that's what they did. They maligned his character. They believe that he isn't holy. They believe that he doesn't care. They believe that they can give him anything they want, and he's so needy that he's excited about getting anything. Oh, please, please, I'll take it. And we have the same attitude in church. I'm always amazed. I'm always amazed. And it's always been this way in church, that when you have a sofa that you don't want to sit on anymore because it smells like dirty dogs, that when you buy a new sofa, you decide to give that old nasty thing that's not even good enough for you and your family to God. You ever notice that? We'll just give it to the church because God will take anything. No, no. Let me just read to you Malachi chapter 1, these verses, and then we'll draw this to a close. Turn to Malachi chapter 1, if you would. That's Matthew, one, one book to the left. God is having a conversation with his priest. And this con- it's like a con- he makes a statement, and they go, what? I didn't know. Oh, what are you talking about? I never said that. And God just drives this point home to his priest. Malachi chapter 1, we're going to look at verse number 6 through 14. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, the son, this is God speaking, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Okay, that's the way it should be. If I, if then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name. Wait a second. How have we despised your name? The priests say, in what way have we despised your name? It's really simple. You offer defiled food on my offer, on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. I don't want to give God my best. I want to give God the stuff that I don't want anymore. I mean, I've got these, I got these animals that are the first fruit, the very best that I have. But instead of offering to the Lord, I mean, I can make money on those. What I'll do is I'll get the lame ones over here, the blind ones over here, the ones that nobody wants or you're going to ground up in the hot dogs. I'll give those to the Lord because it cost me nothing. Verse 8. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why don't you offer them to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. We would never do that to our boss or our governor, but we do it to God all the time. But, but now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably? Said the Lord of hosts. No. Who is there among you who would even shut the doors that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hand. Why? Because this is the God that redeemed us. From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among not just you, but the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered in my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, said the Lord of hosts, but you profane it. And that you say the Lord of the table is defiled and his fruit, its food is contemptible. I don't want to participate in that. I don't want to eat that. All the fruit is rotten. You say, oh, what a weariness it is to do these services to the Lord. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed, listen carefully, cursed be the deceiver, the cheat, The Ananias and Sapphira, who has in his flock a male, takes a vow but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Sells a piece of property, gives it to the church, and tells the church it was far greater than it really was. For I am a great God, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. This is the last book of the Old Testament. And we see this happening in the church. What are our lessons? It's really simple. There will always be those in the church that don't belong. Always. The wheat and tares have to do with lost and saved in the church, uh, but there will always be those who are sold out to Jesus. There will always be those who aren't. And my experience has been in all my years in the church 
that when you decide to commit yourself totally to the Lord, your lost friends will applaud your actions, just like you do with them. Your lost friends will applaud your commitment to pretty much anything. The people that will drag you down, the people that will be most offended by you being sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ are your fellow church members, your Christian family, because all of a sudden when your light begins to shine, they all of a sudden realize that there's, it isn't, and it's much easier to drag you down than it is to raise their game. Have you experienced that? Always be weed among the tares. Actions, what you do, always speak louder than words. The Holy Spirit is not to be trifled with. He is fully God, and he's not to be mocked ever, ever. Pride, arrogance, Sin hindered the Holy Spirit from moving in your life and in the life of the church, and therefore God will go to great lengths to purify his church because he loves each and every one of us. So what do we do? We repent and we confess. This is the latest version of this. I've given this out to you at least three times since we've been at church. Uh, The last version I gave to you doesn't quite look like this. You probably still have it at home. You may have gone through it once. Um, You may have not gone through it. But what this book does is it basically just goes through various areas of your life where you can pray and God will reveal sin to you and you can confess those sins and be able to walk in the fullness and the freedom of the life of forgiveness and repentance Christ has given us. You can have your damaged emotions healed. You can have your besetting sins taken away. You can begin to experience the higher Christian life. If you go through this book, for those of you that have, it wants to make sure, first of all, that you're saved, and then it asks you simple questions. Lord, will you reveal to me areas that I have held on to counterfeit truth? And we'll go through a whole list of things, of false religions, of false teaching, of the occult and stuff of that nature, even innocent things like a magic eight ball. You know, and it will go through those things, and you confess those and, and reject the counterfeit, accept the real. Then we'll ask you how you've been deceived, how you've been deceived by the world, how you deceive yourself. And if you'll go through these, in my situation, I've been deceived at times and even currently, almost every one of those. You know, at some point in time, believing my feelings are more important than God, believing this about God that may or may not be true, and God reveals that to you, you confess it, you shut the door, and you're done. Lord, you said that I need to forgive people. If I don't forgive people, you don't even hear my prayers. I don't know who to forgive because the people that have hurt us in the past, we've suppressed them, so we don't even think about them now. So we ask the Lord, Lord, who do I need to forgive? You let me know, and he will bring names to you. He'll bring names to you that you haven't thought of in 20 years. You write those names down, and you forgive those people for simply the fact that I want to have good relationships with Christ, not because they don't not because they deserve forgiveness. I don't forgive them for them. I forgive them for me. And you pray, and that's all taken care of. Then it looks like we deal with areas that we've been rebellious against, rebellious against civil government, rebellious against our parents, our teachers, our boss. Just anybody telling us what to do? I ain't going to do it. I'm going to do my own thing. And we pray through those as God reveals those to us, and we get freedom from that. Pride and humility, which is a real big one in here, thinking that you can hang around uh, bad company and not be corrupted. Oh, that that doesn't apply to you. It just applies to everybody else and on and on and on. You pray through those things. You talk about bondage and freedom, the sins that we have, whether they're sexual sins or whether they're just just my nature, it's just who it is, it's just the way I am. I can't change. Yes, you can. Yes, and you ask the Lord to reveal those things to you, and he will and give you freedom. And then, of course, there's generational sins you may not even consciously be aware of. and Ask the Lord to break any bonds that are there and commit your life to him. And I want to encourage you, if you have this at home, take it out and go through it tonight. If you don't have this at home, go on Amazon. Get the Steps to Freedom in Christ. They're $4. They'll be here day after tomorrow. And go through it. And put some time in trying to get free to from any roadblocks that you may have, keeping the Holy Spirit, like Ananias and Sapphira, from flowing through you. Because I believe, it's my personal opinion, pretend like I'm standing here and I'm not behind a pulpit, my personal opinion, I believe as things get darker 
in our world right now that God will no longer tolerate a lot of the garbage that claims to be Christian today and that he's going to purge his church just like he has in every other generation and face persecution. And you want to make sure, you want to make sure that when he begins judging his church, because judgment begins with the house of God, you know that verse, when he begins doing that, that your relationship is one that the spirit can flow so quickly and smoothly through you that you're an asset and not a liability to him as he begins preparing the world to receive his son. Amen? Let me pray.